Bankless Nation. Welcome to another State of the Nation episode. This is a special episode we have lined up for you because it is EIP 1559 week. That's right. The week has finally come. The deployment of EIP 1559. David, we have so much packed in to this week, but let's talk about the first event, which we are hosting right now, live streaming this on YouTube. You can catch it on the podcast as usual later. Uh, what is the panel that we have lined up today? Yeah, we have Tim Bako, who is one of the guys that really stepped up to get EIP-1559 over the finish line and then stepped into the all-core devs uh, coordinator position with uh, with all of Ethereum. Uh, and so Tim uh, came to us and said, I really want to ask some experts, some, some expert level EIP-1559 questions. And so that is what is going on today. Tim uh, pulled in who he thinks uh, has uh, just the best understanding as to what EIP-1559 is from the expert perspective. So he is asking the questions that, Ryan, I don't think you and I would have been able to even think up. Uh, and Dude, so this not, is- We're not smart enough, man. Like, we're not, we're like, not smart enough, no. We were smart, barely it. smart enough to handle the, uh, the EIP-1559 introduction with, with Hasu that we had <laughs> a few months ago. And by the way, guys, if you're looking for a primer on 1559, we want to refer you to that episode Take a look at the Bankless archives. We'll include it in the show notes as well. But this is a deeper dive mm -hmm. because th this panelist has the EIP 1559 rock stars. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, Tim Bako. Who are the other panelists, David? Yeah, we have uh, a bunch of uh, core client developers. We got uh, Barnaby Monat. We have Light Clients, aka Matt. Uh, we have Hazu, uh, who uh, is, uh, I would like to say that Hazu came over to the Ethereum world because of EIP 1559. Maybe that'll be a question in the show. And then we, of course, also have Micah Zoltul, who is a major contributor to uh, Ethereum. Guys, you can ask questions on YouTube. Tim is, is going to be um, asking questions from his own roster of questions. But after the conversation, David and I are going to pop back on, hopefully ask some of our own questions and address some of the questions in YouTube. So ask those questions. We will be documenting those as we go. Guys, this is just event one though, because the actual deployment of EIP 1559 happens. I'm going to say, what, what, what block number is that? Block number 12,965,000, I believe, if I got mm -hmm. that correct, David. Mm -hmm. So what time is that going to be? We don't know. It's on the Ethereum clock schedule. So it depends on block speed, but it looks like it might be around 5 a.m. Pacific time mm -hmm. on Thursday. That would be 8 a.m. Eastern on Thursday, August 5th. So you know David and I are going to be up, and what are we going to be yep. doing? Yeah, we're going to be live streaming with the boys over from ETH Hub, and we're also pulling in some classic Ethereum community members. We got Hudson joining the call. I just got a message from Danny Ryan saying he'll be there. Uh, Trent Van Epps is going to be there. Um, uh, Tim, I believe Tim is also going to be there. So uh, it's going to just be a, a community call of people all watching the block of EIP 1559 getting mined. Uh, and so that stream will actually be starting, I think, roughly around 4.30 a.m. because the, I, we think that the hard fork is happening roughly around 5. So we want to be there a little bit early to make sure that everyone gets a chance to watch it happen live. So David's going to be up early, not as early, early as our ETH2 staking uh, live stream, <laughs> but still pretty early. I'm glad I'm on the East Coast for this one. Uh, mm -hmm. Last event for you later that day on Thursday, we have an EIP 1559 bulls panel. We're talking about all of bullish things that EIP 1559 could mean for ETH the asset. We have Squish Chaos, DC Investor, James Wang. We are live streaming that at 2 p.m the afternoon of August 5th. So lots to catch up on. The best way to just catch up on everything is to subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, Bankless YouTube, and then click notifications on. 
David, one last thing, and then we are going to get to the sponsors and then the panelists, that is, <laughs> pull together. They're doing some really cool things uh, right now, David. And this is like celebration of scalability summer with Pull Together. So if you don't know Pull Together, they are a no-loss lottery. So that means you deposit your uh, ETH, it could be your, your USD, your stable coins in. You don't lose any of it. You only have the possibility of gaining uh, they they uh, they actually um, use some of the DeFi protocols to uh, generate interest and then pay those out as prizes on a weekly basis. So every week there's a lot of draw. Super cool protocol. Super cool way to save. You can see right now if you deposit in some USDC, uh, there's a weekly prize of 50k that you could earn. And if you click into that, they also have some loot box prizes too in every single one of these. These could be um, you know other coins as well. So super exciting. The thing I'm most excited about, David, is uh, no gas fees because it is also layer two summer, scalability summer, mm -hmm. and gas fees are much reduced with some of these right now sidechain uh, type deployments and Polygon and others. And I think roll-ups roll will be coming soon. So a lot happening there. David, anything to add? No, that's pretty comprehensive, Ryan. <laughs> Guys, just get in the pool. Uh, cool. The link is in the show notes, bankless.cc slash pool together, relocate your savings account to pool together. All right. We are going to get to the sponsors right before this panel. These are the sponsors that made this episode possible. Balancer is a powerful platform for flexible automated market makers. Typical AMMs just have two tokens inside of one liquidity pool, which can lead to fractured liquidity across the many pairs in DeFi. With Balancer, you can access the full power of multiple tokens inside of one single AMM, which unlocks an entirely new playing field of possibility. This makes Balancer an awesome building block for so many different use cases. Balancer pools can make asset indices, but instead of paying fees to portfolio managers, Balancer lets you collect the fees from traders who use your portfolio for liquidity. Additionally, Balancer smart pools can be programmed to have properties that change according to predetermined rules, such as changing the swap fee based on market conditions, or even liquidity bootstrapping pools, which can help you launch and distribute your token with day one liquidity. At Bankless, we use a liquidity bootstrapping pool to sell our BAP t-shirts to much success. Balancer V2 brings powerful new features that makes your money work even harder for you. In V2, idle tokens are capable of generating yield in DeFi without sacrificing liquidity in the pool using Balancer's asset managers. Balancer's vault architecture lets you trade between Balancer pools at a fraction of the cost versus trading on other platforms. Balancer's mission is to become the primary source of liquidity in DeFi by providing the most flexible and powerful platform for asset management and decentralized exchange. Dive into the balancer pools at app.balancer.fi. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their Earn program, where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi, or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. 
when I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. Well, good morning or evening, everybody. Um, welcome to this 1559 paddle uh, that I'll be running for the next hour or so. Um, yeah, so we have a lot of people here with uh, pretty extensive experience with EIP 1559. Um, as you all introduce yourselves, um, one kind of first question I'd like to ask you is, what was the moment that you kind of got 1559? And what I mean by this is that it's a pretty complicated change. Uh, it tends to take people like a lot of pass through it to, to feel like they, they fully understand it. Um, so yeah, as you just give a quick description of yourself, just walk through kind of what what made you get 1559. Um, Matt, you want to go first? Sure. Hey, everybody. I'm Matt. I go by light clients on the internet. Um, I work for a small team called Quilt. We do a lot of core protocol R&D, and I was one of the main contributors to 15, for 1559 and Go Ethereum. I don't think there was one specific point whenever 1559 like specifically clicked for me. I think there were kind of a couple points. And I originally read Vitalik's paper a few months after he wrote it, the uh, pricing resources paper. And I kind of, at a high level, understood, you know, 1559 is going to act like this dampener to dampen the spikes in gas prices during periods of high demand. And that was something that sort of resonated fairly quickly through discussions. And I kind of tucked that away for basically two years until I really started getting involved again <laughs> in the end, uh, uh, the end of 2020. Um, and so that was kind of one aspect. I would say the other aspect of that was the, the Tim Roughgarden paper. I really like Tim Roughgarden's uh, earlier papers on axiomatic approaches to block rewards. And so when he wrote about 1559, I was like, this is a really good, um, a really good paper describing all these things. But there was a, there's another part of 1559, 1559 that didn't click for me until a lot later. And that was how it affects the security of the, 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 the protocol. And I was lamenting to some people, like I didn't like I'm not really the biggest fan, actually, of this ultrasound money meme. I, especially for core developers, I think that it's it's not really my place to you know uh, propagate these memes. And so I was lamenting to some people about this, and they made this good point that we're moving to a world of proof of stake. And proof of stake, we have this economic requirement of ether to kind of have value to provide security to the network, and we have that to a degree in, in proof of work. But it becomes there's a lot less transactional cost of mining and owning miners and stuff. And so at that point, I kind of, you know, back down a little bit from this ultrasound money meme. The, the community can, can have that meme if they want. I think it's, it's done. It's been a valuable resource in pushing 1559 forward. Not my place to perpetrate it, but I think that the value of ether being something that's stable is, is really good for security of the network. Thanks for sharing. That was, yeah, quite the history. Um, Bartabay, you want to go next? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm very happy to, to be here. So my name is Barnabé Mono. I'm a researcher at the Robust Incentives Group, which is a research group funded by the Ethereum Foundation. Uh, we mostly do things that look like game theory, uh, a bit of economics, modelization, simulations. And actually, my experience with 1559 started uh, like everyone else when I was just trying to understand it. And the way I understand things is I just try to simulate them and see kind of how they play out. And this is really kind of when it clicked for me. And I think 
the major insight that I got and that I feel, okay, this is when I actually understand uh, 1559 is understanding why the dynamics of what we call the priority fee or sometimes the tip are completely different from the dynamics of the gas price uh, as they are today, which is something that many people, I think, still have a bit of confusion around. Uh, like, why aren't we just shifting to a model where, okay, there's a tax, the base fee, and, and kind of people still need to compete on that tip to the miners. And once you get this insight, you, I think you, you really unlock um, everything that makes 1559 like a step change in the way that the protocol is uh, doing the, um, the gas market. And so, yeah, I hope we can talk a bit more about this, but I'll leave the other guests. Thanks for, for sharing. Um, Micah, you want to go next? Yeah, sure. So uh, I can actually show you guys my um, where I learned how EIP-1559 worked. Uh, let me share my screen here real quick. So uh, back in July 2018, um, Vitalik wrote this uh, article on E3 Search Forum that talks about basically what ended up being EIP-1559. And you can see here, this is you know 12 a.m. or whatever on July 3rd. And then like, I don't know, six hours later, Micah shows up and I'll paraphrase, so you guys don't have to all read this. So it basically says, come on Vitalik, why are you being an idiot? This won't work. There's no way this will work. This is not any different than what we have right now. We can do better. Um, then Vitalik shows up and again, I'll paraphrase a little bit. And he basically says, oh my God, who is this guy? I've never heard of him before. <laughs> he clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, and he tries to explain some stuff to me, but you can, you can tell from his tone that he obviously doesn't think I'm gonna get it. I'm, I'm beyond help. Um, then, you know, a few hours later, again, this is July 4th, uh, so we're, we're going back and forth pretty quick here. Um, I basically just, again, tell him that he's wrong, obviously, and this cannot work. And then he again tells me, no, you're wrong. And we just basically go back and forth, back and forth. And then Micah mysteriously disappears for like three months. <laughs> um, and then uh, I eventually come back to this thread. Actually, maybe it was like a year later or something, or another thread, years later. And I came back, guns blazing, and I was like, oh my god, everybody needs to get on board with EIP-1559. This is the best idea ever. Hopefully no one remembers what I said in the first place. Um, so yeah, so if you're curious about my learning experience, go ahead and look at this link um, on the E3 search forum, and you can see how Micah, the person who is now probably the biggest proponent of EIP-1559, originally was the biggest naysayer and just spoke <laughs> aggressively against everybody who thought this was a good idea. Wow. Do you remember what made you change your mind between kind of those two, those two things? Um, it was just, I mean, Vitalik ended up being right. I was wrong. And so uh, he, he, he patiently explained things to me and I, I just didn't get it. And a lot of the things I didn't get were the exact same things that people who I explain EIP-1559 to don't get. And so I can appreciate where they're coming from. It's um, like, I was there. I was that guy who was like, no, this, this won't work. You're, this, this is not... You know, the mechanics are wrong. Um, but once you actually dig in and really let it sink into your brain, the mechanics actually do work. Like, it, it does make sense. Um, but it's not obvious at first. Um, and the, the specifics are kind of nuanced, and maybe we'll get into that later in this call. But but yes, it's the same reasons everybody else thinks it won't work. Wow. That's really a, a, a turning of, of, of the tides. Um, cool. Hasu, uh, you want to go next? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm Hasu. Hi, hi everyone. Um, I'm a research collaborator at Paradigm. I'm also co-host of the Uncommon Core podcast and still general editor at Variable Insights, which I helped bootstrap. Um, my first uh, touchpoint with EIP 1559, I would say, was in uh, in early 2020. 
um, when I, I did a, a month long deep dive with Georgios, um, who also, um, who I also collaborated with later on on many articles on um, ERP1559. And we did what was basically a deep dive on all possible block space market designs that um, are employed in the crypto space. So across all projects, pretty much. Um, we looked both at existing proposals and at um, or basically existing implementations, as well as stuff that has been proposed and tried to understand why it has been, like what are the goals of the proposal and and for historic stuff, why has it been discarded? And, and um, a lot of stuff that has been discarded has been broken. So it was very, very interesting to see all of the different stuff that you can propose and then like work through on your own. Why is this a broken proposal? Why does this not work? And this is where we stumbled across ERP1559, which was barely starting to get any traction in Ethereum, I would say. Um, and yeah, we like... I was, the, I would say, mostly thinking about Bitcoin at the time and not very much about Ethereum. And so my, my first instinct looking at this was, well, this is an over-engineered mess. <laughs> um, so it has so many goals, right, described in the original post and so many aspects of it. Like, so there's the fee burn, there's like the elastic block size, uh, then the, quote, the protocol quotes a fixed price, but you still have this tip option on top. And it was so many things. And it tried to be so many things at the same time, at least what it seemed like from like reading the goals. But then I tried to point out why it's actually broken. And I had a lot of experience, a lot of training at this because for months we had been dissecting all kinds of block space protocols and I couldn't. And like within like a few days, I realized, uh, yeah, this is actually like all of these um, moving parts are actually necessary. And it just affects so many things inside Ethereum. That's why you can say it has so many goals, but these are like really oftentimes like downstream effects, right? Like, 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 like the fact, for example, that we burn ETH is, is you could say like, so the people who use ETH as money, they like that it creates a disinflationary pressure on the price of ETH. But then like people who care a lot about security, like that it cements ETH as the fee paying asset in, in the block space market, even if uh, the user pays in any other currency, like even if if get extracted away on the user side, which I think like we are all for in the long term, but the miner still has to keep an inventory of ETH and still has to burn ETH. So it has like all of these very nice um, properties. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that was basically my my experience with ERP-1559. And um, so this culminated in, in our post, like analysis of ERP-1559 for Derivate Insights, um, again with Georgia's. Um, yeah, and this, um, I think this for many people was the, uh, well, the starting point hearing about this proposal because we, we used to get a lot of reads uh, at the time. And um, I think this, this was really like for us when you, you had like this, this crowd of people who were really interested in, in following it and asking for more and more and more content on, on it. And um, yeah, I've been in so many Twitter discussions and, and so on um, because so many people had the same questions, right, that I, that I had. Um, before it clicked for me. And it, I think it was really good training, like just engaging with people on Twitter and on podcasts and explaining it to them like a hundred times, uh, engaging with the different questions. So yeah, here we are. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive how almost everybody here, or I think basically everybody here started off as a skeptic and uh, slowly got got converted to, uh, yeah, to liking 1559. Um, Bartimae, you, you mentioned in your answer, you know, like, 
the the new mechanism is 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 obviously going to be better for for uh, gas usage and whatnot. And you've also mentioned to me in the past that once uh, it goes live, you want to actually track that and and, and try to quantify the impact. Um, so can you kind of give, give us a bit of detail of like, what are you expecting to see? What metrics are you expecting to change once we launch 1559? What, like, what would you consider a success? What are, you know, what are some things that would kind of scare you if you saw them once, once 1559 went live? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think my motivation here is really driven by the fact that I spent all this time doing simulations, trying to think through, okay, how do things work when they actually launch? Um, you can't really get these answers from, let's say, so we have all these test nets, which are awesome to test that the code is working, clients understand each other, but they don't really tell you so much about like the economic properties of the mechanism or, or really what happens when like there's actual money on the table. Um, so we know cannot go maybe too wrong because it is live in some version uh, on some other networks. But the things that I will be very much like looking at and that I think are, are super interesting to, to keep track of. Uh, the first one is kind of looking at, if you're thinking of the chain, you have these metrics block by block, um, looking at the gas used. So you have in 1559 doubly sized blocks, which allow to have like kind of this uh, damper when you have demand shocks, uh, trying to understand, well, are the blocks getting too full? So one question we often get is, how often does 1559 revert to, to a kind of auction uh, on the tip? And Hasu and Georgios kind of uh, made this meme of 95% of the time, like things go right, 5% of the time, maybe there's too much people at the same time and we need to, to have this auction. Um, and in, in that case, it's, it's, the mechanism still works, but maybe there's more instability on the, on the user side. And so one question is, well, is it really 95 can we quantify uh, how often uh, 1559 is pushed in, in this kind of uh, regime? The second thing uh, that I'll be looking at, and it's, it's certainly kind of dual to the, to the gas use, is actually the series of base fee themselves. So we wrote a paper with some of my co-authors. Um, we've seen that most of the time uh, base fee, so the base fee update rule is kind of a multiplicative rule that depends on the gas that was used in the previous block. Uh, these update rules, they're really, it's actually a fairly simple one and let's say even naive, but it's, it's good that it's naive in some sense because it, it makes it somewhat robust to whatever the protocol can throw at it. But we know that there are regions where that update rule can be maybe too slow to pick up the actual, like if the demand is changing really fast, you want the base fee to catch up with this as fast as possible. And in other regimes, it can be also too fast. And, and when it's too fast, it just kind of flip flops around a value without necessarily getting to that equilibrium. And that can lead to instability in the sense that you can see blocks which are empty because basically kind of jumped up and everybody's priced out. And then it goes down, everybody wants to go in and you, you can have this. So we know that in theory, that's something that can happen. In practice, maybe, I mean, we, it, I'll be very curious to see if we, if we actually see that happen. And one reason that we might see it happen, which is maybe the third thing that I'd be looking at, is also kind of how um, so users send their transaction via their wallets. And their, their wallets are using oracles to kind of determine uh, the parameters. For 1559, you have two parameters, the max fee and the priority fee. And depending on how these parameters are set, uh, it's possible that you can find 
um, different patterns in, in the way that the transactions are first dealt with at the transaction pool level. So how they kind of uh, get ordered uh, by the clients. But even when they reach on chain, uh, yeah, what do you observe? Do you observe these oscillations? Do you observe that maybe uh, the oracles can be tuned uh, given the data that we have on it? Like we often say, okay, you should take this kind of random constant as a, as a, as a oracle default, but we'll change it when we know a bit more about the mechanism, when we have the data. And so I think it would be very important to, to kind of backtest uh, how the oracles have done, especially at launch where we have this mixed regime some wallets will be still sending uh, legacy transactions, so like the old format, and new wallets, or same wallets, but new versions will be sending more 1559 native transactions. So kind of picking apart, uh, yeah, how wallets are doing, can we backtest it, can we understand uh, how to make them more optimal perhaps? Uh, these are definitely the things I'll be, I'll be looking at. Cool, thanks. And to, so to summarize at a high level, um, three things, how often do we actually get uh, this reversion to first price auctions? So basically 100% uh, full blocks. Um, what, how does the base fee evolve? Do we, do we oscillate smoothly or do we just kind of you know, go from full increase to full decrease? Um, and how well do oracles adapt to set uh, basically the, the, the priority fee for transactions? Right. Yes. Excellent scenario. Yes. Nice. Um, and uh, Micah, I think you wrote what was, uh, at least for me, the best explanation of like why fifteen fifty nine actually improves UX for end users. Um, and I know you spend a lot of time in, in in several Discord servers, kind of dealing with users who say have their transactions pending and stuck today. Um, so can you take a few minutes to actually walk it through from like a kind of a, a new user to Ethereum? Um, coming in, like, why is fifteen fifty nine going to provide a better experience for them to get their transaction included than than the current system? Uh, sure, let me go uh, find the article I wrote so I can read it real quick and remember what I said. <laughs> Apparently, it was a great argument. Um, if I remember correctly, so basically, right now, what we see. So, I for the, for those who don't know, I run a little side business where um, I offer so support services, outsource support services to Ethereum applications on it on. Uh, on Discord. And so I have a lot of insight into what problems users run into because my team is constantly helping these users deal with those problems. One of the most common problems we see with, from, from users is stuck transactions or pending transactions, same thing, different different names. And so a user does a thing on, uh, on Ethereum. So like they go to Uniswap or they go to um, whatever app they're using. They go to use it, they um, plug it into in the app, it pops up MetaMask, and they say, okay, and they basically choose the defaults, and they think that their transaction, they just say this little pending spinner shows up, and they're like, okay, my transaction should be included soon. The problem is, is writing an oracle is very hard. So figuring out what the right gas price is, is a very hard problem today. And so that, that app, so MetaMask, is doing its best to try to choose a gas price that results in two, two things at the same time. One, the user isn't overcharged. So they don't want to set a gas price that's really high and then the user ends up paying more than they needed to. And two, a gas price that is not too low that the user's transaction doesn't get included. Um, when gas prices are stable, so when the demand for block space on Ethereum is very stable over time, meaning like the exact same number of people want to be included as are submitting you know, spread out over, let's say 15 minutes, then this, this problem is pretty easy. You just say, okay, what was the, you know, look at the lot previous blocks. Okay, they're all around, you know, 20 or whatever. So 20 is what we'll set. This problem becomes much, much harder 
when the demand for Ethereum is increasing for, for any reason. So it increases because there's an ICO or a new NFT sale or just because people in the US are waking up or because it's a weekend or a weekday or you know it's the second Thursday of the month and it's payday in you know Azerbaijan or whatever you know whatever it is that causes gas demand of ethereum to increase um, is is very complicated like this is the whole world of people doing things and for some reason they have all decided to do things on ethereum right now and so what happens is the user shows up fills in their fills in everything hits submit and the gas price is set by metamask using an oracle that usually works pretty well but this time it didn't because it estimated a gas price based on history and demand is increasing. And so the gas price keeps going up and up and up and up. But the problem gets worse. So the user has a stuck transaction. You think, okay, well, they can just increase their gas price. The problem is the user doesn't know this. The user just knows their transaction is stuck. So they, what do they do? Like, okay, I'll refresh the page. So they refresh the page. But now the page doesn't remember that they had a pending transaction. So then it just prompts them again. Hey, what do you want to do on the internet? And they say, oh, I want to swap some coins. So they go and fill in the form again. They swap some coins and hit the button. And it still doesn't work. So they try another browser and they repeat the process. And now the, by the time the user comes to us for support or comes to somebody for support, they've got like six transactions out there. If we're lucky, someone helps them that can walk them through the process now of canceling all those transactions because the user only wanted to do one swap, but they've got six swaps pending. And so someone will walk them through the process of canceling those transactions, which is not super hard, but it's, you know, it's kind of technical and the users don't really understand what's going on. So there's kind of blindly following people on the internet who are giving them advice. And we all know that's a terrible idea. Um, and so like, that's, that's the happy path where people are following advice of random strangers on the internet to fix their problem. The unhappy path is they don't go seeking help soon enough. And what ends up happening is all six of those transactions go through. And instead of buying, you know, five, ETH worth of Dogecoin, they now have bought 400 ETH worth of Dogecoin. And they do not want 400 ETH worth of Dogecoin because it turns out that drop tanks the Dogecoin price or whatever it was they were doing. Like the thing they're doing is not the thing they wanted to do. And so now you have a very unhappy user who now is seeking help and like, how do I undo this? Okay, so the first thing they try, of course, is okay, let me, I'll swap back. And so they swap, go to swap back, but you know, for whatever reason, there's huge demand and they get in the same situation. So they, you know, swap back 20 times and now they're, you know, shorting Doge or something. I don't know. Like the point here is that users get into these really weird situations when things don't behave as they expect. And with 1559, the hope is that we can kind of solve for the most part, solve this whole class of problems by just making it so that one root problem. So that one root problem in this scenario was Writing an oracle for the gas price is hard. Predicting what the future price of gas is is a really hard problem because you both don't want to go too high and you don't want to go too low. And so you can't just like overbid because then it costs the user too much money. And you can't just underbid because then you end up stuck. And so that's a really hard problem. And so 1559 will hopefully make it so when the user goes to, goes to MetaMask, MetaMask can follow a very simple algorithm that will 95% of the time, or hopefully even more, 99% of the time for lucky, you know, will get it right and will not result in users in that situation. And when it gets it wrong, we want it to fail gracefully. So in the ideal situation, that 95, 99% that we're hoping for, what's going to happen is the user will be included in the next block and they'll pay exactly like the minimum they need to pay. And that was it. In the kind of worst case, hopefully worst case scenario, the user will have to wait a little bit, but they'll still get a good price. Like they still won't end up overpaying. And in the you know worst case scenario, they you still I will acknowledge you can still end up in this kind of pathological pending transaction situation, but the hope is, is that becomes a much much more rare thing that it doesn't happen to like 
you know, 100 users a day, it's happening to, you know, one person every couple of months gets stuck in this situation. And that's a significantly better situation just from usability and making it so users experience with Ethereum is simpler. And, and all this just because we can solve that Oracle problem easier because we now have the data and we now have this uh, second price auction thing. So you don't need to try to do complicated auction stuff. Thanks. Yeah, that was a very colorful uh, overview of, of the situation. And I think it's one of the things that gets missed a lot. Like when we talk about 1559, people say like it'll improve the UX. Um, but um, yeah, that's often like a very abstract thing. Uh, so yeah, this helps kind of put it in perspective. Um, moving on to Matt, uh, you've worked on like not only 1559, but on a ton of other kind of pretty uh, important EIPs. Like your team worked on account abstraction last year, which eventually morphed into 3074. Uh, you've implemented 1559. And you're, you're one of the people who has background both kind of with the smart contract level and the core protocol level, which is which is rare. Usually people are on, on one part of the stack or the other. Um, so how should smart contract devs building on Ethereum kind of think about 1559 and what, you know, should they change anything about it? How should they, how should they basically, yeah, change their practices or, or approach 1559 as it, as it gets deployed? Yeah, I think that's one of the cool things about 1559 is like Micah was saying, there's all these UX improvements, but for the most part, smart contract developers get to just take advantage of all of these things for free. Like there's been a lot of work by core developers and researchers up front to try and make sure the 1559 is a change that's safe, that it's actually works the way it's intended to. And a lot of other the burden has been sh shouldered by these wallet teams, like developing uh, how they're going to choose these priority fees and interoperating with new RPC endpoints. And so now the smart contract developers kind of get this free ride. They just get to take advantage, they get to continue building their their smart contract to take advantage of a lot of this work that uh, people have been doing over the last few years. There are a few uh, nuanced cases where 1559 really does come into play. And one of the interesting ones is that the gas price opcode will begin to behave slightly differently. It's not really something most people are actually going to notice, but now for 1559 transactions, the gas price opcode will return the effective gas price of the transaction. So that takes into account the base fee. It's the actual amount that's being deducted from the account paying. And if for the most part, people who use the gas price off code, this probably isn't going to be a problem. There is like a very specific class of people though that use the gas price off code in pathological ways or expect that they could potentially have a gas price of zero. And that's something that won't be possible with 1559 anymore. So you've kind of removed a, a you know, a few paths of execution that could have existed in the world. So now if you ever had anything that was checking, if gas price equals zero, then do this, that's not going to be possible anymore. And so if you were a smart contract developer who decided that was a great idea, then that's something you should consider. There is a class of people, I don't know if they actually have gas price equals zero, but Flashbots does generally require that these bundles are being included with a gas price of zero. This kind of helps them from, if their transaction is uncle, they don't have to pay the gas cost to go into uh, the transaction. And so if you are someone who's planning to use flashbots for something, whether that's for MEV or for account abstraction or user onboarding, these are things that you should take into account. And I'm not certain what flashbots has chosen to do about this, but now you have to understand that you, you won't be able to have zero gas price transactions anymore. So that's kind of 
you know, how 1559 changes what exists in the EVM today, but 1559 does add this new base fee functionality and an opcode was added not in 1559, but in a different EIP 3198. And this base fee opcode is going to provide really exciting new functionality to the protocol that smart contract developers should consider looking into and, and maybe using. And there's a couple of like places where this base fee opcode could be really valuable. The first one is if you want to pay for some uh, bounty to be executed on chain. I know there's a couple of protocols that do things like this, where maybe someone will say, I want to have this limit of order executed at this price. And a relayer will decide to submit it on chain whenever that bounty would pay out. But there's kind of this difficult problem with like, how do you decide what a fair price to pay for them executing that on chain is? Because if you, you know, if you want to have a bounty that pays out like years down the line, it's really impossible for you to know, like, is 10 Gwei going to be a good price for that bounty to pay out to the user? Or is like, are we going to be like, you know, 200 Gwei? And you can't really use the gas price opcode because then the person who submits the bounty could really just grief the user. They could submit a 500 Gwei transaction. And, they, and there's no way for the execution of the smart contracts right now to get a fair idea of what the gas market looks like. But base fee is basically a mechanism for having insights during execution of what is the current demand for gas in the protocol. And so this creates like this really nice mechanism where you can pay for bounties more fairly. And having this base fee opcode is also going to allow like new financial primitives around the gas markets to emerge. And I think we'll see people develop like future mechanisms uh, based on um, the gas market, people want to speculate whether gas prices are going to go up and go down. And we kind of had this with gas tokens because you can mint a lot of gas tokens whenever gas was really cheap. And then there was demand for it. You could sell them whenever the gas price is really high or you could call them in. But there was like very significant transactional costs of using gas tokens. And it wasn't really something that was a net good for the protocol in general. And now this base fee opcode is going to be something that we can use to much more efficiently develop gas market primitives. So I think that's something that interesting that smart contract developers should, should look into and consider. And the last one is really for these like layer two scaling solutions. There are a lot of fraud proof based solutions, rollups, uh, even state channels have some sort of like replay mechanisms to play out states. And right now you kind of have this, this, uh, this world where we just choose a static amount of time to give for people to submit their fraud proofs on chain. And I know like optimism says like one or two weeks is this is the challenge period that you have to submit a fraud proof. And that's to avoid, you know, minor censoring for a long period of time. What we might be able to do with base fees, we might also be able to look at the actual load of the chain and determine how, how, how many people are trying to execute things on chain and potentially expand those fraud proof periods during periods of high demand. And so that might allow these challenge periods to become more efficient so they can kind of become elastic with how much demand is in uh, the market for block space. Thanks. Yeah, that was pretty comprehensive. Um, and one thing I'll add is uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, using the base fiat code to build gas derivatives. Um, it's also worth noting that London has another EIP 3529, which will make the current gas top tokens uh, unworkable uh, because of how it changes gas refunds. Um, so yeah, if you are kind of a heavy user of, of gas tokens, 
um, that's not going to be possible after London. And so, um, yeah, looking into ways to build these gas derivatives off the base fiat code uh, is, is probably worthwhile. I should probably also mention that if you're more of a full stack developer for Ethereum, there's actually a fair number of changes that came to the RPC with London. And so this isn't something that if you're a pure smart contract developer, you may interact with. But if you are a someone who maintains a backend system for a DeFi application, you should consider looking at, I think, Tim, you and Trent put together this, this comprehensive guide of the, the things that are changing with London. Uh, we could probably link that in the show notes. But there are a handful of changes. And I'll, I'll mention like one, the if you're calling this RP, these RPC endpoints that receive transaction objects, there is a gas price element of these transaction objects. And normally that's just the gas price of the transaction. But with 1559, we now have these two different elements that kind of relate to the fee market. We don't have a gas price, but for backwards compatibility reasons, we're continuing to support gas price. And so that value would be equal to the max fee for per gas before the transaction is mined. And then after it's mined, it will be equal to the effective gas price of the transaction. And that's something that you should be aware of if you're a developer interacting with these things. Um, so yeah, take a look at this, this document that Tim and Trent put together. Yeah, good point. Um, yeah, a lot of applications are not just smart contracts and they'll actually have to interact with the, the node itself. Um, and changing gears completely, um, there's been a lot of like talk about minor revolt around 1559 and the fact that the base fee burns of ETH, which, which obviously lowers their income. Um, and I think, Hasu, you put together, alongside with Georgios, I believe, kind of one of the best explainers of why it's in miners' best interest to support 1559. Um, so could you kind of quickly summarize that, that argument for us and yeah, what you, how you think kind of the, the game theory plays out here? Yeah, I mean, so you already touched on it, right? So why would miners even be uh, interested in blocking EIP-1559 or somehow like revolting against it? It's that... Uh, the EIP will burn some of the fees that are generated in the block space market, right? And at this point, I would ask you like uh, how into how much detail you want me to go um, because it would cover like um, stuff like MEV and uh, how that plays into how much is being burned since I understand these might be like later questions. Oh, go for it. Yeah, yeah, as oh, much. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, basically the first analysis that we did was first to find out how much is actually being burned because we, we thought that before that point, there was this very, well, sort of naive understanding that like all the transaction fees that exist today in Ethereum um, would end up being burned. And so like all of the fee revenue that miners make would go down and they would be only left with the block subsidy. But fortunately at the same time was uh, when Flashbot started to get a lot of traction, sort of the, the, the private relay for miners. And they, um, they were very transparent with um, their data um, and they started classifying a lot of um, sources of MEV, minor extractable value, and um, made public how many of the transactions um, in Ethereum today are sort of transactions that fight for, for MEV, stuff like liquidations and front-running users and, uh, and so on, and arbitrage most of all. Um, and so we, we we took that data set from Flashbots and tried to uh, map it over the total miner revenue in order to understand how much of what miners make today is actually from MEV and how much is from regular transfers. And the reason we did that is that um, to understand how much is being burned, you can think of sort of the, the block, the, the list of transactions is not actually one market, but actually several markets. So 
the the market to be included like in anywhere in the block is actually a very different market um, from the one about in, being included at a very sp specific point in the block. For example, like at index zero, like being the very first in the block. So you can be the first to do an, an arbitrage between Uniswap and SushiSwap, for example. So that was, that was a very important insight that these are two different markets. And in the priority market, basically ERP-1559 doesn't change anything. Um, this, is, this is a market that will always happen um, so between those who want to submit their transactions, get their mind in a specific slot and the miners who control the ordering. And, and this is money that couldn't possibly be burned like, because if the protocol set some value for that, then the market would just move off, off chain for that. Um, yeah, and so we realized that all of the MEV that is extracted in Ethereum today will be like untouched by um, ERP-1559 and wouldn't be burned. And we tried to, to simulate that. We found that like maybe 30% um, of the fees that are generated today are actually fees that are uh, from regular transactors who don't care about where their position in the block is. And probably 70% or more is actually nowadays just from uh, MEV extracting transactions. So uh, this was like an important insight for us because it showed that it would be like much less impactful on miners. And um, I think this also helped sort of to diffuse um, the opposition from miners a bit. Um, because if you, I mean, you, you, you could argue that it's in their best interest for miners to like adopt any change that sort of the users want. Um, and it is to a degree, but you can still create disruption in the mining market and create like perverse incentives there if you end up reducing like, the revenue that you pay the miners by too much over too short of a period of time. And um, so it was it was quite good, good that, um, you know, the, the reduction of revenue turned out to be much smaller. And um, also that the that like the uptake, uh, the uptake um, from the market of this update was so positive that arguably contributed to uh, like how, how Ethereum and Ether as the asset was perceived in in like the 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 the, the, the public basically, right? So because for miners it, it matters not just how much revenue they make denominated in Eve. So they don't just care about the Eve denominated fees, but of course they also care about uh, so the other side of the equation, how much can they sell that E4 in dollars? So um, so both of those were, uh, I think, very important. So I think you have this one side, which we just discussed, that the, the reduction of fees is actually not that large. Um, and, and second, that miners are structurally long EVE, um, like they have a lot of future revenue at stake. And so generally they are incentivized to go along um, with what users want and what they think that users and developers and, and, and all of the parties building on an Ethereum, what they think is best for the ecosystem, because that is what maximizes both the value of ETH and sort of the economic activity that ends up generating uh, all of this MEV and all of this transaction activity. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, this is one thing I'm curious to hear other people's thoughts on this because estimates vary wildly. You mentioned, you know, the current fee market is, you can think of the gas price as, as combining two things, the right to be included in a block at all, and then your positioning in the block and revenue in a post-1559 world from just the right to be included in a block is what's 
associated with the base fee and that's what gets burnt and then revenue from uh, positioning or right of inclusion when there's there's too much demand is is what goes into the priority fee um, and you estimate there's basically like a 70% of this that would end up in the priority fee and therefore not be burnt and then 30% would would uh, represent the base fee. Um, I'm curious if anyone else here has thoughts on, on that breakdown. Do you all agree this is kind of what we should expect or um, yeah, anyone have strong opinions on this? I would add maybe one thing because this is this does not at all like refute what uh, so what Barnaby said earlier that you have different regimes, right? Where the, the demand is very high to get into a block and that's why you end up with a tip auction. So this is something that happens in every block. Even if the block is just 10% full, you are still going to have competition to be in the top spot in that block that has otherwise yeah. zero base fee yeah, and zero tips. And it, yeah, I guess it, a way to think about it is almost like if you had two blocks and one of them had just room for one transaction and then you know the rest of the transactions is almost like a separate block. Yes, um, yes. The, yeah. This is exactly the right framework. Thinking of it not as one block, but actually as several blocks stacked on top of each other. Yeah, yeah, and there's always going to be obviously kind of one transaction's worth of demand for that sort of premium block, and then the demand for the rest of the block space varies based on just general demand for Ethereum. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, do, do people generally agree with that split? Uh, do people have kind of differing opinions? So I, I don't know the exact number breakdowns. Um, the thing to keep in mind for, for everybody is that um, the MEV or minor exchange minor extractable value is highly variable. And so we will see some blocks that have relatively little, like it's not very interesting. And you'll see a block that's got like 100 ETH in it. And so um, in that 100 ETH block, uh, as Hasu kind of described, like the person who paid 100 ETH to get to the front of the line, they really, 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 really want to be in the front of the line. Like they're willing to pay 100 ETH to be at the front of the line. Um, they are going to pay 100 ETH to somebody to get to the front of the line. Like either that's a miner through gas price or it's a miner directly or it's some off-chain payment channel or it's you know a cash dropped at a, underneath a mailbox. Like they will figure out a way to, when you've got 100 ETH you're throwing around, you're, you'll figure out a way to get the money into the hands of the person who gets to decide who goes first. And so, um, so yeah, so from that standpoint, I totally agree with everything Hasu said. Like the, you can't avoid that. You can't make that go away. You can you can drive it into the dark, which just makes it harder to see and harder to record. Um, but it will always be there. And so, uh, but that means regarding seventy percent versus thirty percent, um, it's hard to say. Like uh, there's many people who have done research on this and come up with different numbers. I think a lot of it comes down to like what time frame you look at. If you look at some like uh, back when things were going crazy, what was it like six months ago or whatever, or nine months, I don't know how long ago it was. Um, like that's very different than, you know, a boring week in the middle of summer, you know. And so um, just keep that in mind with, with any sort of stats like this, that it really depends heavily on what time frame you look at. Like if you look at like a, a one, a five-year time frame, it's very different than a one-year time frame, which is very different if you look at 2018 versus 2017. Like there's so many variables here. Um, it's really hard to come down with, I think, a, a concrete number. Um, but in general, I, I think Hasu is, is generally correct that there, there is still a lot of value going to miners and will continue to go to miners as long as they are the ones choosing block order. Barnaby, Matt, any thoughts? I mean, I don't have much to add. I think it's it's quite clear, but I, I do have in mind this idea that, yeah, basically looks like today's gas price uh, or like average median gas price, let's say. Uh, priority fee is mostly going to be nominal, like the 
minimum you need to send to be included by the miner, except maybe when you have kind of like these tip auctions and then you have this MEV process, which I think so. Maybe one thing is the 70, 30 figure kind of hides the fact that as Mika pointed out, uh, MEV is extremely variable. So you have a much more variance perhaps in revenue uh, for miners. And, and this is perhaps something that's yeah worth just pointing out. Um, yeah, and I guess talking about MEV, um, I think Hasu, your analysis was maybe one of the first ones uh, related to 1559 that actually took MEV into account. Um, but if you look at a lot of previous analyses, um, including, for example, Tim Roughgarden's paper, um, or even some previous papers that were written on how kind of high transaction fee blockchains are, are less stable and more prone to short reorgs than um, high uh, block reward relative to transaction fee chains. Um, none of this kind of took MEV into account and they were all kind of written in, the, in a pre-MEV world. Um, so I'm curious, you know, are there other spots where, you know, aside from the actual just minor reward, um, you think MEV can have an impact with, with 1559? Uh, oh, was that at me? I thought. A anyone, was... yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't really have anything uh, to say at the moment. So if anyone else has any thoughts. Maybe just to yeah point out that by design, 1559 really addresses more of a problem of pricing inclusion in a block. And it's almost completely agnostic to, to the problem of position. So inherently, there's not so much interaction. Um, between the two, like the base fee is kind of yeah, this minimum fee to enter the block. And so that really has nothing to do with what happens at the top heavy, like long tail of these high uh, gas fees. So yeah, that's maybe one reason why MEV and 1559 don't interact that much. The one place where they do is now these MEV strategies, they need to pay the base fee, whereas before they were able maybe to submit more like zero gas price transactions. So, but this is not a huge, uh, I think, difference. Yeah, I would second that. I think it just makes sense, just even for the sake of it, just drive home uh, like the the notion that like EIP one five nine does not fix MEV, um, because for like a long term, uh, this was a popular talking point, I would say. Um, and um, yeah, took like I think it's just important to say it again and again and again. Like there's not really much overlap between the two, apart from what what Barnaby said. Um, Ika, you unmuted yourself. Uh, do, you, do you want to say anything? Uh, I was going to say basically the same thing. Uh, EIP 1559 does not fix um, censorship attacks. Like censorship attacks are still a thing and they are still a risk. This is why we're moving to proof of stake, but that's for a separate call. Uh, 1559 will not make those go away magically. Uh, yeah, I, I do think this is a, yeah. An important point to make. Uh, the other thing 1559 doesn't fix is high gas prices, in case anybody still believes that. Um, so yes. Oh yeah, fix. that's that's the other good one. <laughs> yes. Um, um, cool. I guess uh, bringing it back a bit more to the the technical level, um, Matt. One thing that was interesting is you actually implemented 1559 in Geth, uh, and and you're not part of the Geth team itself. Um, so you kind of ended up writing the reference implementation or the the implementation and kind of the reference client. Um, can you talk us through like what that process was like, how, you know, yeah, as like a non-maintainer, you got this, this pretty massive change uh, included in the court, in the code base? Yeah, so I think like the journey for working on 5059 for me started in early 2020 when we started working on account abstraction. 
And so the, our, my team, Quill, we spent about six, seven months working on account abstraction. We wrote an implementation in, in Geth of this EIP and we were benchmarking all these things. And during this time, there, there was like more discussions in the summer about how to have typed transactions in Ethereum. And this was something that Micah was, was proposing. And I was really interested in typed transactions because that was a way to path forward to maybe having sponsored transactions in the protocol. And that's something that like is really exciting for me because I think that's a big UX problem with Ethereum. And so I was all on board with type transactions and it also helped account abstraction. And this is kind of whenever I started getting more interested again in 1559 because 1559 was another type of transaction. And so I sort of volunteered in the fall. I said, you know, it sounds like type transaction is something that's useful. Let me just implement it in Geth. And so I pinged the Go Ethereum team, I pinged Martin from the team and I said, hey, uh, is it okay if I just implement 2718 for you? And he said, sure, go ahead, knock yourself out. This was kind of like earlier in the cycle of Berlin and it, it wasn't 100% certain it was going in. And so they didn't want to waste cycles on dealing with 2718. So I, I, and it was a pretty big change in the code base because it basically added this discriminator to like, it basically broke this transaction type up in the go theorem code base. And now you have like multiple transactions and kind of this new abstract type for transactions. And so I would kind of like ping them every once in a while and say, Hey, does this, does this look okay? And, and they would, you know, respond and say, yes, this is good. This isn't good. And, and it, generally that would happen. I mean, a lot of this stuff happened in the open through, through GitHub and through PRs. And so I think that if people are like watching this this uh, live stream and they're interested in core development, like a lot of the times it's just a matter of opening PRs and um, trying to become part of that process. So I did 2718 and that really set me up for working on 1559. And I think Tim, I don't know if it was started with like you kind of like pinging me and you're saying, hey, are you interested in helping with 1559? And I think I was kind of like rebuffing you in the beginning because there we were working on some other things at the time and 1559 has really never been a, something that like I personally was like very, very excited about because it was something that made a lot of sense, but I was more interested in things like sponsor transactions. And so I kind of like rebuffed in the beginning saying, oh, there's other things we'll work on. <laughs> and so after I think a little bit, I just realized that, you know, there's only a handful of people right now who can implement these kinds of changes in Go Ethereum. Go Ethereum team at that time was like doing a lot of other other things. They were working on SnapSync. That was like a really big thing they were trying to launch. And so it was like this is something that I should do. <laughs> this is like this isn't what I want to do necessarily, but this is like for the greater good of the, the the ecosystem. So I need to become a part of it. And like it worked out really well. I really had a good time uh, implementing it. And so I implemented mo most of 1559 in like one or two weeks the core consensus changes were like relatively straightforward. And I kind of like put a PR together and shared it with the Go Ethereum team and was able to start syncing with the 1559 test nets at the time that Abdel from the Besu team had put together. And so the actual core changes were not super significant. They touched a lot of parts of the code, but it's like generally it, it wasn't a, a crazy change. And then basically for the next six months, it was a matter of, all of the auxiliary pieces, all of the testing. And I don't think that it's, I don't think a lot of people understand, you know, just implementing an EAP, that's like 10% of the work. And, it, you know, I'm already standing on the shoulders of giants, all of the people who have done the research, vetting, vetting the idea in general. Like, I think 1559 is one of the most 
rigorously analyzed EAPs that we've ever had go into the protocol on all uh, aspects from, you know, original design research to engineering to testing to fuzzing. And so I, for about six month period was just helping implement all these other things, right? Working on the mempool implementation, changing the way that the miner works. And um, a, a lot of the, the work lately has been RPC and endpoints and 15 and 15, 15, 59 changed a lot of aspects of the RPC. And I think for me, like the biggest takeaway from working with 1559 is that we need better facilities for discussing changes in the Ethereum protocol. And if, if you look at the 1559 EAP, it basically just implements a really stupid Ethereum client in Python, because that is kind of like the best way of describing these changes. And so I think the similar thing with this the RPC endpoints it's really difficult to just discuss in pros and through one-off EIPs how these things are changing. It's a lot simpler to follow a more traditional software engineering process and say, here's a new release of the RPC, et cetera. Yeah, thanks. And I guess a quick related shout out that you are working on an actual full spec of Ethereum uh, executable spec. So that'll be really helpful to have. Um, yeah, shout out to my team, Sam and Somo. They've really been grinding out we're going to replace the yellow paper with the Python implementation. So that's very exciting. Yeah, that'll be great. Uh, Micah, I see you have, you went off mute for a second. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that just to echo a little bit what, what like client said in the middle there, um, I think a lot of people assume that, you know, a platform that's managing 200 or $300 billion or whatever probably is being built by a company the size of Microsoft and has, you know, 40,000 people working on it. And so surely one developer won't help. Um, in, in reality, <laughs> this platform that is managing, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars has far, far, far fewer people working on it than Microsoft has. And yes, one more developer definitely can help. Like there, there's lots of places you can contribute. Like Matt said, one of the greatest ways to get started is just find something that you can make better in just a small way and submit a PR and just make it better. You know, if, if, if you're not a developer, there's other places you can help as well. You know, EIP editing is a lot of just kind of grammatical and clerical work, like just kind of making sure things flow through a process. Um, you don't need to be an expert in, you know, some arcane language in order to do that. Um, lots of places people can contribute if, if you're interested. Yeah, uh, definitely agreed there. The amount of people who make this possible is shockingly small. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, before we, we move on to audience questions, uh, I have kind of a final two-part question for you, Hasu. Um, so yeah, you were actually pretty new to the Ethereum community. Uh, uh -huh. I, and, and I could say, you know, 1559 was almost your entrance in, into this community. Um, so I guess first I'd be curious, you know, to, to hear you, just like talk through your experience of kind of advocating for this massive change um, as someone who, who wasn't like deeply embedded in the community. Um, and then kind of the second part would be, is, is 1559 something you would want to like campaign to see elsewhere, uh, possibly even on Bitcoin in the future? Okay. Um, so yes, I would say that yeah, yeah, pre one five five nine was sort of my my entry into the Eve community. I I had been an Eve holder before that, and I was sort of following it. Um, but um, yeah, I really got my start with EIP one five five nine and with DeFi when I really started to appreciate uh, what you can build on Ethereum. And yeah, I mean, how what what that affords you basically the trade offs that Ethereum makes because as a Bitcoiner, you're always focused on 
the trade-offs that Ethereum makes, but you like some people don't see all the good stuff that that buys you, right? Like the ability to have non-custodial permissionless finance, have a sandbox for developers to play around. And I, I think we will see amazing things um, happening as a result of that in, in the next decade. Um, and yeah, I would say that it's, it's hard like to trace back exactly like um, where that started, like that, that, that turning point for me, but it, it was around that time, definitely like both VIP 1559 and DeFi and seeing, you know, just writing research and just, it, it was like taken up so well by the community and like the, just the feedback was so good. Like so many people were open to collaborate. It was, it was just, I mean, it's, it's it like a meme, but it was really like everything that like people praise about the Ethereum community. So I could really like confirm that this was definitely true for me, right? That it, you have a collaborative spirit and um, everyone's really um, open to talking to you. Like no matter who, right? Can be like really high profile people. I never had the, uh, the impression that like any, that there were any closed doors um, in that sense. So uh, yeah, I think uh, th that's why nowadays I would definitely say I'm more, or at least just as much home in the Ethereum community as I am in the Bitcoin community. And going back to sort of my intro, um, when George and I did this um, deep dive into block space market protocols, this, this was at least partially informed by sort of my, like a deep seated fear that I have um, about what happens in Bitcoin when the block subsidy goes away. Because until this point, uh, like the demand to transact hasn't really been enough at any like longer period of time um, to pay for security in Bitcoin. So there's really like two uh, possibilities here. Like I, either the demand picks up and like we, we still have this like systemic problem, but it's sort of, it's sort of not, not, not relevant because people, there's not enough demand to transact and people are going to, um, to pay these fees. Um, or we make some change to the block space market mechanism or to the, to the monetary, um, yeah, to the monetary policy basically. And yeah, this was sort of the, the original, what set us out on this quest to, to find, um, what's possible. And, I don't like, so first of all, I would like every chain that has um, a, a block subsidy, I would rec like recommend to adopt EIP-1559. And I think we are seeing it almost everywhere now. Like almost every new um, Ethereum competitor starts out with EIP-1559 implemented. Uh, I think we know, I I've seen like at least eight chains, seven, eight chains that have it, have had it before Ethereum, <laughs> which is kind of funny, but I mean, that's just how the thing, how things go, right? When you have these like smaller, more nimble, um, chains where there isn't a lot of at stake and you can just, you know, just do it. <laughs> um, so for, for them, I would definitely recommend it, but this shows sort of why it may not be possible in Bitcoin, at least like as the design is right now, because EIP-1559 burns the non-priority part of the transaction fees, which in Bitcoin is hundred percent of it basically, because there's no MEV or almost no MEV. And so you would burn all the transaction fees, simply speaking. And we already don't have enough transaction fees. So you, you kind of rely on there being a um, perpetual block subsidy that can pay for security. Um, and you don't have that in Bitcoin. So I think unless that changes, which I see as very unlikely, I think it's unlikely that we will get, we get to see any sort of proposal where transaction fees are burned or the, the, um, or the protocol itself sets the price of transactions. I would support other proposals, um, for example, uh, fee smoothing mechanisms um, where 
sort of part part of the fee is paid forward into a security fund, for example, that can then like when demand to transact is high, generate more fees than necessary. So you start paying some of those maybe into a fund and um, and later then when block subsidy has declined, you start consuming this. So at least buys you like maybe a couple more years or so until this becomes a serious problem. So yeah, that's that's a proposal that I think would be more fitting for Bitcoin and one that I would campaign for. Yeah, that's super interesting. And you can even imagine like a naive implementation of that where if fees are on average uh, high enough to secure the chain, but maybe not on a per block basis, then like a 1559 mechanism where the fees get sent over, say, the next 100 blocks or something um, can help you convert this kind of uh, volatile income stream into something that's a bit more uh, predictable um, as a security budget. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, so everyone will have done 1559 before Ethereum and Ethereum will have done it before Bitcoin. Um, I think this is a good place uh, to open up for community questions. Um, David, you want to take it back? Absolutely. Guys, that was an absolutely fantastic panel. I'm going to have to rewatch that myself to make sure that I caught everything. So thank you guys all for being here. I need to get Ryan back into the show because we kicked him out before just video logistics. Uh, so we're going to take community questions. If you are watching on YouTube, we have been logging some of our favorite questions in a little document, but this is your last chance to get new questions in there. We're going to cut to sponsors for a quick two minute break. I'm going to get Ryan back in here and then we're going to start going through some of the community questions that we got through YouTube. So here we go. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. The Aave protocol is a decentralized liquidity protocol on Ethereum which allows users to supply and borrow certain crypto assets. Aave version 2 has a ton of cool features that makes using the Aave protocol even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi money Legos, yield, and composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can supply to the protocol in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have supplied collateral. Here you can see me borrowing 200 USDC against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens in ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock in that interest rate in permanently. V2 also features the ability for users to swap collateral without having to withdraw their assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. With Aave, users can do this in one seamless transaction, saving you time and gas costs. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com.
Hey guys, we are back. The panelists are still on. We got some of your questions that came in via YouTube. We're going to ask them, David, man, it was fun to watch as a guest on one of these bankless panelist episodes. Uh, mm-hmm. What a fantastic group of individuals, uh, you know, Tim and crew managed to pull together and uh, yeah. What were some of your impressions, I guess? Yeah, my, my impressions are, are there's just an entire massive playing field of just thought around EIP-1559 that like I've I've thought that I was paying attention to EIP-1559, but like there's it's one of those things that it has rabbit holes in of itself. And so, like I said, right before we cut to sponsors, I'm going to have to actually re-listen to this for my own benefit. Rabbit hole inception, rabbit holes mm-hmm. within rabbit holes. Yeah. And, I, you know, a few interesting things to me, I tweeted some of this out. It's like everyone on the panel seemed to start as skeptics. And then they turned it to supporters. That's kind of interesting. Um, you know, uh, a panelist made the question, like client made the question, EIP-1559 is one of the most rigorously tested EIPs to go into the protocol. Um, we heard Hasu's story about uh, moving into the Ethereum community as part of protocol. So I think this, this represents a, a lot of what's great about the Ethereum community, the level of analysis, the permissionless nature of it. It also represents some of the challenges. Like, um, I don't know how many times the, the panelists said, hey, there's, there's not that many of us actually doing this super important work. Like, come join us, come submit some PRs. Like, we need your help in order to continue uh, this, this whole uh, research project and implementation project we call Ethereum. Anyway, uh, lots of stuff to dig into. Let's get to the questions though. And I'm going to start here because one of the panelists um, actually may have thought they showed up to the wrong meeting because I pronounced this EIP-1559 and I've just been told that might not be the most canonical way to represent it. So actually somebody in uh, the, our Discord channel asked this question. This is oddba11.eth. Maybe these panelists can tell us if it's pronounced 1559 or... 1559, or as I have taken a uh, habit of saying, 1559. Guys, which is it? What is the correct, correct pronunciation of EIP blank? I, I won't bias anyone by, by saying what I think it is. Uh, Lake Lion, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, at the beginning of the show, I you know was just settling in and I heard you say, welcome, we're going to begin speaking about 1559. <laughs> I, lo- I missed everything you, you said after that because I was like, oh no, is this, this is the wrong call. <laughs> I, I, what is I the can't correct say that I've actually heard people say 1559 in, in, in a while, at least. I feel like it's 1559. That's the, I don't know, Tim probably talks about, Tim, Tim probably has dreams of different ways of pronouncing the, the, the optimal way of pronouncing 1559. But to me, it's always been, yeah. 1559. 1559. If you want to be formal, full. If you want to go full formal, EIP one five five nine. One at but a time. Fifteen five nine. That's like formal casual. I haven't really exactly heard that. <laughs> formal casual. That's what we do on Bankless. Yeah, that sounds like casual. actually the right Bankless branding. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Any other thoughts, panelists? I mean, we're, we're talking about naming. Obviously, I have thoughts. <laughs> uh, my my personal favorite is the one thousand five hundredth and fifty ninth EIP. <laughs> since the start of Ethereum. That's usually when I'm in casual conversation. That, that's how I'll express myself to users. Sometimes if I'm you know, in a more business environment, I will say the fee market change for the Ethereum chain. Um, you know, it really depends. Do you guys think that we're going to need to call this differently in the future after it's implemented? Or is kind of EIP-1559 here to stake? Is it uh, here, stuck? Here to stay? Is it just stuck? I think that the boats of calling eeps by not their number sailed a few years ago 
Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, and I mean even stronger than that, other blockchains call it EIP 1559, which always <laughs> make me laugh, right? Um, so yeah, I yeah. think yeah. I don't know how many times I've had conversations with people like, you know, David and I like work on the the layer zero, the the social layer, the 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 meme layer of Ethereum, uh, if you will. And like, can we come up with a better branding for this thing? And no. we threw around ideas, we had names, we tried some things, nothing stuck, like absolutely nothing. And so EIP-1559, it is, I think, for eternity. Where where are we at on BIPs? Like, can we just put some like no-op BIPs in to get to BIP-1559? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the BIP, uh, Hasu, what BIP are we on? What? Oh, like what 300, BIP? 400. Yeah. So I don't know how it works <laughs> in Ethereum, but BIPs and Bitcoin aren't given chronologically. Um, oh, so, that, so they are Butter. like the number goes up, but uh, like the first part of the number is is reserved for like special things. Like it says what kind of what type of BIP this is. Oh, so fuck. what what kind of what part of the system it touches basically. That's as long as number say. goes up, mm-hmm. Bitcoiners are happy. <laughs> we know that is true. <laughs> David, you want to ask the next question? Yeah, maybe turning to, to more serious questions. Uh, a question from QB on YouTube is, what happens when people send the old transaction types after EIP-1559 is switched on? Um, maybe I'll throw that one to Tim. Sure. Um, basically, what it does is behind the scenes, it'll treat your legacy transaction as... <laughs> yeah, behind this, uh, Matt said in the chat, all, all funds are burnt. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, so behind the scenes, it'll send your your transact. It'll convert your transaction to a 1559 one, and what it does is it sets your gas price equal to both your max fee and your max priority fee. Um, and what this means for the user is that when you send a 1559 transaction, uh, you basically get a refund for the difference between your max fee and the base fee plus the priority fee. So if you put a very high max fee, uh, you'll never pay more than the base fee and your max priority fee. And that makes it very easy to figure out, you know, to set a transaction because you can just set a high a high max fee and, and know you'll get included and get a refund. For legacy transactions, um, your max fee is equal to your max priority fee. So that means that any difference between the base fee and your gas price basically will go straight to the miner or the validator. Um, so it just means you kind of don't get that refund for extra fees paid. Um, you can still, you know, if you're if you're savvy, kind of estimate exactly what's like the right gas price and, and, and how to get that into a block. And, and that's basically you're back to the problem we have today. Um, but this is super important because we, you know, even though it might be slightly more expensive for users, we never want to be in a spot where like somebody is using your wallet that doesn't support 1559 and now they can't interact with it with ethereum um or even uh, another edge case is like you signed a transaction a year ago before 1559 was even like considered for mainnet and you had like this you know note to yourself that you were going to send this transaction on the network in two years and that transaction should still be valid right uh so yeah uh legacy transactions will still will still work Fantastic. Anyone want to add on to that before I move on to the next question? Hearing none, I will move on to the next question. Uh, this comes from uh, Mr. Green, and I'm going to actually amend this question just a little bit. Um, Mr. Green asks, what happens with your gas during a canceled or stuck transaction after the EIP uh, 1559 goes live? And and I'll add on to this, like, is what, how does the nature of a like pending transaction that gets like, quote unquote, stuck, how does that change once EIP 1559 goes live? Um, uh, I'll just throw that one to the to the open. Anyone want to take that? Uh, so, 
so if, if you submit a transaction after 1559 and um, you got very unlucky because you happen to submit it right when there is a massive increase in demand. So today you get stuck if there's any increase in demand uh, when you submit it. Um, with 1559, you, you still can get stuck, but only if there's a huge increase in demand. And we're talking like 2x increase in demand over a very short period of time. And it's sustained. So that's another key is that's this, that demand increase has to stay increased, like continue increasing. Um, for an extended period in order for you to get stuck. If you do get stuck, then you are back in the situation you're in today. So we, we have very similar mechanics where you have to um, submit a cancellation or you'll have to submit a replacement. Um, and so, so that problem still does technically exist. I want to make sure you know all the listeners are aware that that problem doesn't 100% go away. The, the critical part is getting into that situation should now be very rare. And so you, again, just to reiterate, same problem, same solution. Um, cancel or bump the, bump the price, your, uh, your gas price effectively. Um, but we really hope that if, if we tune things correctly, and this is what Barnaby was talking about early on the call, that after this launches, we'll be watching so we can tune things. And we want to tune it so as few people get stuck in that situation as possible. And so what, maybe you know right after launch in a few days, um, we won't have gotten the tuning quite right, and there'll still be you know, a significant portion of people getting stuck. Um, and that sucks and didn't achieve one of our goals. And so then in some future hard fork of Ethereum, we'll just dial some parameters and do some research and tweak things and try to get better. And so eventually we can hopefully get to a point where no one gets in that situation. Actually, uh, Micah, when you're talking about um, you know, tweaking things and uh, changing things, that, that leads me to another question that was asked on, on YouTube. And this Owls Baker, I believe is the username handle. Um, I hear Bitcoiners using this argument against Ethereum that the Ethereum Foundation constantly changes Ethereum. Is there any merit to what they're saying? I think this is a reflection on the critique that, hey, um, core developers shouldn't change the anything uh, economic, anything to the issuance policy at all. And that is one of the virtues or merits that, that Bitcoin has. And uh, Ethereum shouldn't make this trade-off. Any thoughts on that question? Is there any merit to this argument? I actually want to start with uh, Hasu. Is kind of our um, you know resident Bitcoiner on the panel. Mm, sure, I mean, I would say there's some merit to it. I mean, I don't think I don't think there's any merit to saying that the Ethereum Foundation chooses what upgrades get into Ethereum. I think that's not really how the EIP process works, and um, I'm not even sure that the Ethereum Foundation pays um, most client developers. Uh, maybe that's something that the the actual client developers here can shed some light on. Yeah, the short answer is they don't. Uh, there's one team on ETH1 and zero teams on ETH2 that are part of the EF. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's that's what I thought. Um, so I would definitely say, yeah, Ethereum is changing more and it's, it's easier to get stuff implemented in Ethereum. But the IP159 is actually a great example. Um, it's, it is a very big change. Like I wrote, once wrote that it's the biggest change ever made to a, an already deployed blockchain. Um, like proof of stake will also be a pretty big change, but I think ERP-1559 is, is, is to date the biggest. And, and this is like a really cool thing to look at, to see how much, like how long the process took um, and how many people were engaged in the process and how much scrutiny it received. And I mean, it took a couple of years to get ERP-1559 implemented. And there were a lot of skeptics, I would say for a long time. Um, and it was just uh, a process of, you know, eventual uh, consensus in the community where I would say like those of us who wanted the ERP just produce more and more uh, like educational material and analyses and and so on, eventually like swaying 
some of the skeptics, you know, over to our side. And at this point, I would say it's definitely a consensus decision. So it's not like there's somebody, you know, making a top-down decision that we want to have this EIP, right? Right. It's it's like it has so many supporters now, and I I can't think of any uh, skeptics anymore at this point, really. Um, so I would say yes. So it's it's bad when things. I mean, there are, there's value to things being hard to change, but if it changes in the right way, like if the right checks and balances exists, exist, then I think there's also a lot of good that can come from, you know, adding new features. Mike, I think you've written posts on things like this. What, what's your take on the same question? Yeah, so I think that there is definitely merit to this. The, this, this question, is, this the, is, is it better to change or is it better to not change? Um, when you're building a large financial system, as people are familiar with the legacy financial system, um, it's well known that banks do not change fast. Like from, from a programmer's point of view, it's always like a running joke that banks are running on code that was written in the 1980s. And it's now hard for them to hire people to change that because everybody's dead who knows how to write code in those languages. And um, there's a reason that banks are hesitant to change. And it's because when you're dealing with large amounts of money, especially other people's money, you, you ideally don't want to break things. Like you don't want to you know, make, a, make a mistake and then have people lose you know, all their money or all your money or all of some investors' money. And so it's a very scary thing. Um, and so from the standpoint of the, the argument that, well, Bitcoin is stable, um, that, that's very reasonable. Like, Having that stability is very valuable. People like stability. People want, especially in their financial systems, they want comfort in knowing that things will be stable. Um, whereas Ethereum is definitely moving fast. We're changing things every six months. We have a hard fork. That some of these hard forks are very big. 1559 is very big. And that's a very different um, paradigm. And I think the, the reason I like Ethereum personally is because I feel like the space is so new and so young that it's too soon to calcify and it's too soon to stop changing. Like there's so much we can do and there's so many things that are right around the corner. Like the, the technology is just so much in its infancy. It's like having a kid and then saying, okay, you're two years old. Now's a good time to stop growing. It's like, there's so much opportunity. Whereas, you know, once they get to, you know, 20 or 25, maybe that's a good time to stop growing. They, they've matured enough. That they can be useful. They can be productive and they have learned enough and they have advanced enough that, that, that is a useful tool. And, and so I think Ethereum is not there yet. I think eventually, I will eventually lobby that Ethereum should calcify like, like Bitcoin has. I just don't think that's now. I think that sometime after proof of stake, sometime after sharding, sometime after you know, ZK rollups on mainnet, like, like there's a number of things that I think Ethereum should do before we decide that, okay, now's the time. Let's slow down. Let's solidify. Let's make this a platform that people can trust is not going to change. I just have a quick follow-up on that, but before we do, we, we want to thank uh, Tim Baker, who's got to go uh, to attend another call and uh, maybe help get EIP-1559 out the door. Tim, you're a fantastic moderator, maybe future co-host of the Bankless <laughs> Podcast. Who knows? Unlimited potential here, sir. Wait, who's thank getting you for everything you've done. I don't know yet, David. <laughs> Amazing to be seen. Thank you, sir. We appreciate your well, moderation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for setting this up. Um, yeah, and to obviously all the other panelists, uh, I appreciate you all taking the time to, to come here. Awesome. Guys, we still have a few more questions uh, coming in if the panel can, can hang on. I just have a quick follow-up to Micah, though. Uh, you raise a really interesting point. Um, do you acknowledge, though, that, that like the, the time for Ethereum to calcify is somewhat subjective, right? So like, how, how do we determine when the right time to calcify is? Like, it's obviously not now immediately, but um, isn't there always going to be new tech, new features on the horizon to implement? 
a hard question, especially since there are so many participants. I, I think that at the least, like when Ethereum's yellow paper was originally produced, it said we're going to do switch to proof of stake. So at the very least, we should wait to calcify until after proof of stake because that was like a thing that was promised and everybody kind of presumably agreed on that if you're going to use Ethereum, you acknowledge that this will eventually adopt proof of stake. So, so at the very least, I don't think that it's super reasonable to argue for calcification prior to that. After that, things start to become a little more questionable because we have things like state expiry and sharding and you know ZK stuff like magic, and those are things that you know weren't necessarily agreed on when Ethereum was launched, you know, six years ago or whatever it was. And so th that's where things start getting a lot more murky, where it's like, should we? Um, sh should we continue to build and iterate or should we calcify? And may maybe one of the options is Ethereum just forks. Um, and we say, okay, proof of stake launched, everything we promised in the yellow paper is done. We're gonna like calcify that and that will be a supported thing and we'll get security fixes. Separately, we're gonna continue building off of that in this other direction and build great things. Um, I'm personally a big fan of forking as a form of governance. I think it allows people to have you know, different belief systems and different values and kind of live and self-segregate and operate in sandboxes that align more with their beliefs. And so, but I know a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people would rather Ethereum stay as one big thing when there's one Ethereum. And so I, I do think that we will eventually see, you know, big debates on this exact topic. And I don't think there's a clean answer necessarily. Any yeah, other panelists want to add on to that before I ask the uh, next question? Maybe to add to this, I think the calcification is, is kind of a default position in the mind of many people who maybe come from the Bitcoin ecosystem, like this idea that at some point the protocol just cannot uh, keep changing. Um, it's true that over time, the more things are built on it, uh, the more difficult it is to make these changes. But rather than argue for finding the correct point at which the protocol should calcify, I would argue for finding the process that makes us decide whether uh, we should do it or not. So finding what Mika was describing with the checks and balances, um, like in my position, I'm definitely not an immutabilist. Uh, I joined the Ethereum ecosystem because I like this idea of its ever-growing ecosystem. It's like this organism that just adapts to, to whatever is thrown at it. I cannot tell what will happen in 10 years. I mean, quantum computers, ZK magic. So I would definitely be more in favor of rather than thinking, okay, is it the time to calcify? Just asking the question, how do we make the choice if we if we have it in the first place? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, oh, go ahead, Hasu. Oh, I would pose um, a different approach to the question. I, I don't think it's really necessary for us to choose when it's time to calcify. I think this is also something that just happens automatically because every up upgrade has a cost, right? I mean, first you have to create uh, social consensus, which is a difficult, very difficult and a long process. And then you have to like all of the shareholders in the system have to upgrade their systems and so on. And there's, there's so much uh, involved. Um, and this is like, this is very costly. Like a lot of companies and a lot of DeFi projects and a lot of people have to spend a lot of developer hours, um, you know, on making this up, every upgrade in a human reality, right? So a human asks a lot basically from their users. And the more users there are, and the more businesses built on Ethereum as, you know, part of the infrastructure stack, and so on, um, the more people will be affected by every upgrade. And the basically every upgrade needs to do more to, to pass their bar for still supporting it. Um, and I think it will get, it will just get harder and harder over time to make enough people want to upgrade. And so it just calcifies basically on its own. Matt, you, wanna, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I was just gonna add one other thing. Um, in terms of like the calcification, one thing to me that like really 
makes a blockchain a blockchain something that's like goes beyond a, a, just a database is having ordered available data and where we're going with eth2 with sharding and having massive new um, uh, massive quantities of, of data availability that is to me something that even if you don't even if you want to do something that's not possible to do specifically on the ethereum chain if ethereum provides that platform for making data ordered and available you can begin to build different types of primitives using client-side verification rather than having things go through the EVM. And so I think that that's going to open up an avenue for people to still use Ethereum, but really be able to experiment in like really crazy things that may not be possible on the base layer. That's a great addition to that. Uh, we just have a, a couple more questions to, to get through, and then we will have gotten through all of them. And also, I want to point this one to you because it's a, a little bit in the world of uh, game theory, and I think you might be best equipped. But uh, for the other panelists, feel free to also hop in on this. This question comes from Yuan. Uh, miners uh, might artificially reduce the block size after 1559, up the update, uh, so that users are forced to be in a tip bidding war like we already are now. Is, is this something that we can be concerned about? Is there a topic of conversation to be had about minor block size manipulation um, to maximally extract value for themselves? Hazu, have you thought about this? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, probably the most obvious thing that you have to think about like with, with regards to EIP-1559 and how it can be broken by its participants, right? Um, so if we, if we argue that miners don't want any fees to be burned then they could make this a reality they, they they could just say okay we never mine blocks that are higher than the target because if blocks higher than the target are, are mined then this is what makes the base fee go up right? and if blocks lower than the target are mined then the base fee goes down so they mine blocks lower than the target base fee goes to zero and then they keep the block size below the target and this way you, this way you can basically keep the Keep the base fee at zero forever but if only some miners do this then um they will always have to so they will basically have to leave transactions in the mempool of users that, that also pay fees um and i mean then any other miner can come along and include all of these transactions in their block and they can include a lot of transactions because there's all this slack like all this extra room um in in, in the block size in, in eip1559 and they can scoop up all these fees and you know make more profit. So, I mean, this shows that you can do this, but you, you, you need all the miners to cooperate on this. So either everyone follows along or sort of the, the miners who want to do this have to have to pressure the, the non-compliant miners into compliance, like for example, by ignoring their blocks. Like when you have like 70% alliance of miners that wanted to do this, then they could ignore the other 30% blocks. Um, but it, it also comes at a cost, right? Um, so if the, any user who basically saw their transaction valid when like the 30 or confirmed when a 30% miners block were um, was mined and then later becomes reorganized. I think that's very bad user experience. I think we've talked about this a lot in the last couple of weeks because of, you know, all, all these discussions about short-term reox in Ethereum. So basically that's the answer. So miners can do it, but they would need to be willing to make um, short-term reox and well, basically enforce a miner activated soft fork. And once we once we are like in the realm of saying, hey, a minor activated soft fork is possible, then we also have to think, uh, okay, so isn't this possible today? And the answer is yes, this is totally possible today. Um, if miners were to collude and like enforce a certain high a fee, like a mandatory fee that they charge users for transacting on Ethereum, then they could extract a lot more money from users than 
users would be willing to pay in a fair market, right? Because right now users pay the minimum that is necessary to get into a block. But when, when miners were to set the prices, then users would pay the maximum they are willing to pay. Like this would be the correct sort of pricing strategy for miners. Um, miners could put multiply the revenue, like if they were willing to do that, but they don't, they are not, right? Because I mean, they are in competition with each other and, um, if, if, if this property of a blockchain is broken, then I think users would lose a lot of trust in, in Ethereum and um, far fewer people would transact and the value of ETH would, would, would dwindle. And ultimately, I think uh, it's not in my, miners' best interest. Guys, we're going to close it out with this last question. I think this is uh, for, for each of the panelists. Uh, this is a question of timelines. Timelines in crypto, in Ethereum, are uh, interesting things. Now, I remember when EIP-1559 was first proposed, you know, some people are like, oh, it'll be here in a few months, right? Others will like, this will never be deployed to mainnet, right? Like never, it's not happening. Not five years, not 10 years. It's never going to happen. Um, the truth, it seems like turned out to be someone in the middle. I'm, I want to ask this question of on timelines. Did the timeline surprise you? Um, maybe first I'll, tur I'll turn to Hasu. Did the timeline surprise you, Hasu? I would say yes. Um, so everybody in the Bitcoin community, so like, well, Ethereum has all these future plans for changing the protocol, but they never ship them. It's just, and they were right with regards to proof of stake and with regards to, to sharding, both of which were part of the Ethereum white paper. So like they had a lot of ammunition in that sense. But first Ethereum shipped the beacon chain and, and now they are shipping uh, ERP-1559. And both of these have been important milestones and have, Contribute, contributed a lot to convincing me that the, you know, the development and governance process is actually much more functional than I thought. And um, Ethereum can deliver uh, what it promised, uh, at least like how things are today. So maybe in the past it was like more ineffective, but, but now I think we, like it, it's, it's building a track record basically. And this upgrade have, has helped a lot with that. Like Lion, how about you on timeline? I think Whenever 1559 was originally proposed, it was I was kind of a little bit newer to the ecosystem, and I was um, very naive. I th thought that these things get proposed, and then we upgrade the master node, and it's like very quick type of process. But it, you know, I've like I think I've become like quite jaded in the last few years, especially with some of our, our own proposals. I've been working on this 3074 proposal. And I'm just like seeing that these timelines, they are really like multi-year timelines. And that's kind of, I've had to shift the way I think and work to try and treat things as, you know, small packets of work over periods of years. And you have to like kind of have a few things that you're trying to maintain some like general high level goals the community is on board with. And 1559 was one of those things. And I wasn't really involved until kind of the very end of the process, but I can kind of see how like different people have come in to play different roles whenever their roles were needed. And I came in to play my role whenever it became more of an engineering problem. And so I think that for a lot of changes in Ethereum, that's like a better mindset to think about it. Like it's a multi-year process. And with the merge coming, I think we're not going to see very many new features in Ethereum until the merge happens. I think everybody has sort of decided that we're going to do the merge. This is the number one priority and nothing, you know, we're not going to focus on anything else until it happens. And so that's something that, you know, means that we're probably not going to see new, we're like, we're not going to see new things happen in Ethereum for the next 12 to 18 months, other than merge related things. Micah, what's your take on timeline? 
So I'm similar to uh, to Matt. I was uh, not young and naive back in 2018, and I thought, surely this thing this is is well. After I realized that Vitalik was smarter than I gave him credit for, um, then then I thought, okay, this is a great idea. Surely this will go through quickly. Um, turns out uh, that, that was not true. But I think there there's a good reason for this. Um, when you're you know driving down the freeway with a bus full of children and you're trying to change the wheels on it. You, you want to take that process very carefully. Like you, you don't want to just, you know, just, you know, tip over on the two side wheels, swap the wheel out real quick and keep going, you know, just hope for the best. This is not a YOLO sort of situation. And so for 1559, there, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of people, including myself, and sounds like most people on this call, um, were skeptical of it. And so the process requires us to, you know, convince all those skeptics that this is actually a good idea. And then once we convince the skeptics, then we need to, you know, actually implement it and then make sure there's no bugs. And, you know, there was there was a bug on Robston as re in, in the 1559 implementation as recently as, what was it, two weeks ago or something like that. And so this isn't like a simple thing. Like this is this is after massive amounts of testing and, you know, a month or so on test nets. And then we found still found a bug. So this is, this is very hard to do. And so I, I think that taking it slow is, is the right, right approach at this phase of Ethereum's life cycle. Um, you know, when, when Ethereum was brand new and had 10 users, sure, we probably, probably could have knocked out 1559 in a week. You know, it's, it's, like, it's not that hard. Just throw it out there, see what, what breaks. And if it breaks, you know, restart everything. Um, it's even worse for things like proof of stake because proof of stake had to, you know, build an entire, do a bunch of research to actually, you know, design a system that previously wasn't designed. Like there are chains that have proof of stake, but they make trade-offs that Ethereum's unwilling to make. And so Ethereum had to actually go through the whole research process and figure out how do we solve this problem that no one else in the world has ever solved before without making trade-offs that we're unwilling to make. And so they finally did that. And then you have to build the whole thing. And then you have to test the whole thing. And then you have to convince everybody to you know, actually upgrade and accept that whole thing. And so, um, so yeah, so I think it, it, it was slow, but I think there are good reasons for that. And I don't think it means we've reached that point of stagnation we talked about earlier. Micah, is that you use the metaphor changing a school bus wheel with a bunch of ch children on it? Is that what it feels like to be an Ethereum maintainer, like just driving a school bus with a bunch of kids? Is that is that how you think of are this? we are we the <laughs> are children? we the kids? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if if you see children as just dollar signs, then yes, it's basically the same thing. <laughs> is that how you see kids? <laughs> <laughs> Deeper question. We'll save that for a different panel. <laughs> Uh, That's the Barnaby, I want to make sure that five nine panel, not the fifteen fifty nine panel. <laughs> That's what I signed up for. <laughs> uh, Barnaby, uh, take us home. What, what do you think about timeline? Yeah, I mean, I don't have so much to add, but um, EAV one five five nine was kind of my first project. I joined the EF in twenty twenty. Before that, I was in a more academic background. Let's say things in academia move quite slow, and so when I joined Ethereum ecosystem and kind of started. Uh, contributing, I actually thought, well, this is moving really fast. Like it's a huge system, so many moving parts and, and people are willing to go through these uh, big changes. But it really, it gave me like such an appreciation of the work that goes on behind the scene, especially like the very thoughtful kind of staging process through the test nets, all the work that goes into making the clients work, coordinating uh, an ecosystem which just spreads in so many like different directions, especially 1559. I mean, it touches the economic engine, it touches the client, it touches wallets, uh, the way users interact with the network. So it's a huge amount of work. And I, I would say, yeah, I, I, I can't really say if it was slow or fast because I don't have a good point of comparison, but to me, it feels like it's actually quite fast. 
Well, guys, it is here. We could say that for sure. This week, it is happening. EIP 1559 currently scheduled for Thursday, maybe around 5 a.m. or so Pacific time, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Join us for that live stream where we will be broadcasting, uh, hopefully a celebration when the hard fork goes live. Panelists, we want to thank you so much for availing your time to us. This has been fantastic. And I actually want to thank you on behalf of the Ethereum community for all of the work that you guys put into this. Um, we have been excited about EIP 1559 for many reasons for a long time. And you guys are part of the core team, uh, along with many others who are not on this panel, but you guys have been part of the core team to make this happen. We just want to thank you for all of your work on it. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thank thanks you for, guys for spreading the word. Thank you. For all right. Us. That's what we do. We spread the word. I got to end with this. Of course, risks and disclaimers. None of this was financial advice. ETH is risky. Crypto is risky. Hard forks are risky. Fingers crossed. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. And if you are watching the YouTube, one of the 426 people watching the YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe for the two EIP live streams that we are having on Thursday. Do not miss those. Thanks, everyone.